You know, if um, if you are just joining us, my name is Steve, and I was I was just thinking about as we were singing that song together that uh, it's a really fitting psalm. You know, it's based off of Psalm 23, and it's a really fitting psalm and song for what we've been studying because over the last several weeks, as we've been looking in. Uh, the book of First Samuel, which is where we are as a church today. It's uh, First Samuel is at the beginning, probably like fifth or quarter of the Bible. Um, if you have your Bible and want to turn there, we're in First Samuel chapter 26 today. But David has been been uh, being pursued by Saul, who was the the reigning king of Israel, because David was God's choice of a man to replace Saul as king. And as Saul has been hunting down David over and over and over again, like there's different times through Saul's life where, where, uh, there's like these little glimmers of hope, like, oh, maybe Saul's going to turn it around, you know, like maybe, maybe he's actually going to start following the Lord. And, and, um, and the reason why this is important to to look at like Saul's character is because Saul's character over the past, um, is going to have a lot of relevance in today's uh, account that we look at in first Samuel 26 and in the account that Lord willing, we'll look at next week in chapter 27, because, um, Saul demonstrates something to us, you know, like early in his, in his reign, when, when God told him that, that, uh, he was going to be, his kingdom was going to be removed from him. You know, he, he responds to Samuel this way. He says that in in first Samuel 15, he says, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. You know, clear back, it was that chapter 15, you know, Saul, am I really loud? Yeah, could you turn me down just a bit? Like it's, I don't know how you guys endure it, because when I hear myself, uh, I'm less like, man, I don't know, like, um, (laughs) Rachel knows how you all feel, so, (laughs) Um, yeah, where was I? So, so. So Saul was, you know, there's these times when Saul, like, appears to have repentance. He appears to, like, be turning it around. And then, like, shortly after that, he just goes right down the same path again. And, in fact, he doesn't just go down the same path. He just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Like, Saul Saul continues to spiral kind of, like, downward. You know, in fact, um, so Saul's going to re-enter our story here in chapter 26. The last time we saw Saul was in chapter 24. And towards the end of chapter 24, Saul said this, like after that was the incident where David was in the cave and David spared his life. David came out and told him like, Saul, I'm not like trying to like cause you any harm. Like, why do you keep trying to kill me? And, and in response, like Saul says this, it says this in First uh, Samuel 24, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have this other, and then Saul goes on and remarkably says, like in that chapter, you can read it on your own, but that he knows that David is going to one day take the throne of Israel because of the mercy, the mercy that he received from David was so remarkable that it testified of David's worthiness to be king. And Saul was able to communicate that. That was the last words we heard from Saul before this story begins. And as we get into chapter 26, it's interesting because I was like, man, what am I going to preach on this? Because it's the same thing that happened a couple weeks ago. 
Um, it's, it's, uh, and, and I've entitled it Second Chances this morning, and I won't have an outline this morning. We're just going to go through the story. I've entitled it Second Chances because, um, and we'll see this in just a minute, but, but what happens is, is both Saul and David are going to have second chances to take back what they've done in the past. And what we're going to find out as we look at what David does here is that, is that we're going to see that their hearts are revealed in their actions and we get a glimpse, like, and we're going to get a glimpse as we see da- what David does of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish and what he calls us to be as his people as we see what both Saul and David do with their second chances. So please stand with me as we read, if you're able to do that, in 1 Samuel chapter 26. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5 and then just going to dive into the story together. This is God's word for his church. 1 Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road. And David, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for your repeated mercy to us. that we find in Jesus Christ. And I just pray that you would make that mercy known to anyone here who hasn't experienced it this morning, that you would um, help us to see your righteousness and your faithfulness um, as our King um, demonstrated in Jesus Christ. So I just uh, pray that you would empower me this morning and open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, verses 1 through 5 just kind of establish for us this situation. But, but verses 1 and 2 are really important for us because verse 1, um, is, one is this verse that, that tells us that, that, that gives, the author is giving us a hint that this is going to be a redo chapter. In fact, like um, chapter 26, verse 1, I'll just read it to you. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding on a hill of Hakala, which is before Jeshimon? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Probably not, because... But back in chapter 24, where we were like three weeks ago, I think it's verse 16. I, had, I think I have it on the screen. Um, chapter 24, 16, maybe? Maybe not? I'll flip back there. There it is. As This is, this is uh, back in chapter 24. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul... Nope, this isn't it. Next one. Oh, 23, 19. A little numeric error there in my mind. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horus on the hill of Hakala, which is just south of Jeshimon? So what we're doing, what the author is doing is he's saying, like, hey, guess what? Something is going to happen that's a repeat. Back in chapter 23, what happened is that the Ziphites came to Saul and said this. Saul came after David with his whole army. And if you remember the sermon, that's when, he, when David was on one side of the mountain and, and Saul and his armies were on the other side of the mountain and he sent his armies around both sides to try to encircle David, but David escaped. Do anybody remember that? And now here in chapter 26, verse 1, we have the almost word for word the same statement. The Ziphites, the same people, Betrayed David again. They came to Saul at Gibeah, same place. 
and they said, hey, isn't David hiding in the very same place where we told you he was hiding before? It's this rerun. But there's going to be some, some differences. What God's doing is he's giving both of them some second chances here to take back what they've done before. In fact, we see it tied into not only that story where David was pursued by the armies, but the story where David was hiding in the cave because the very next verse, it says, So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him, this is in chapter 26, 3,000 chosen men of Israel, which is the same group of men that he took when he pursued David and David encountered him in the cave. So the author is telling us like, hey, I want you to have in mind these two previous events where we saw Saul as the story unfolds. It's like if it was in the, you know, you would play out one storyline and then in the you know, TV show, it'd be like this rewind. You know, you go back to the beginning and you're going to play out the same storyline again. In fact, we're going to see all sorts of things. Did you like the special effects? You know, <laughs> I learned that in seminary. Um, they, uh, we're going to see all sorts of things that if you're familiar with those two stories are going to just give you this deja vu sense of like, man, didn't we just study this? Most of you won't remember because it was a sermon three weeks ago. And um, was that too mean? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. All right. Um, but David gives like Saul and David second chances. And, and here in verses 1 through 5, we see what Saul does with his. Like, the, the author doesn't want to hold a, have us hold our breath about King Saul very long because the author probably figures by now we kind of know that all of Saul's external religion that he demonstrates isn't really a reflection of his heart. And even though he expresses sorrow and, and weeps over things and tells David that he knows he's wrong, he just keeps operating in accordance with what's in his heart. Because look what happens in verse 2. As soon as he finds out where David is, so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David, right? Like, so Saul immediately forgets the very last thing we saw him say, which was, you know what, David, you're a better man than me. You're right. I was wrong. You're going to be king. And he immediately just goes back to what like, was in his heart, this desire to protect his throne at all costs. He takes this army of men and goes to pursue David. Now, verses 3 through 5 are important for us because it tells us that Saul's camping um, in verse 3. And then it says that David, uh, it says says this, it says, And David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. What the the author is trying to tell us is is that David was giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He's like, wait. Last time we talked, like things were good with me and Saul. And just because Saul happens to be in the neighborhood with his army doesn't necessarily mean he's hunting me. You know, how many of you, like, there's a lot of you here who are old enough to remember the Cold War. Do you remember uh, Ronald Reagan's, like, famous uh, slogan that he would always tell the Russians in all of his negotiations with him? Does anybody remember? Trust but verify. I I was researching it this week just to make sure I remember it right. And he was actually quoting to the Russians a Russian proverb when he said that, trust but verify. And one time Gorbachev said to him, like, you always say that in every one of our meetings. Uh, And uh, Ronald Reagan replied to him, like, well, I like it. That's exactly what David was doing. David's like, well, there could be a reasonable explanation of why Saul is out here with the same 3,000 men that were hunting me last time. 
So I'm going to send out spies, and what do his spies tell him? That Saul was definitely coming. What he's, they're saying is like, no, 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 his intention really is to hunt you down and kill you. <clears throat> and so then in verse 5, so then David arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and people were camped around him. So David went to go see for himself, and he sees this huge army laid out before him. You know, before I move on, I'm like, there's just something really kind of discouraging about, about, if I was David about that, like, don't you guys hate it when you have like a conversation with somebody, you think like, hey, everything's good. You, you, you try to like extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to them. And then first opportunity that they have, they, they take another shot at you again. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, that's, that's a bummer. Like that's a way smaller word than I should use, but And that's exactly where David was at. He's like, man, we just had this conversation, Saul. You you were weeping when we talked. And yet here you are once again with 3,000 men coming to kill me. Saul squandered his second chance. You know, then we see starting in verse 6 kind of David's second chance. And and I'll just, I'll start reading in verse 6. And then David answered and said to Ahimelech, some of your Bibles don't say the word answered there, but that's literally what it says. David answered and said, his answer to this army before him now, said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So apparently David and Abishai and Abishai, Ahimelech. This isn't the same Ahimelech we saw earlier. This is Ahimelech the Hittite. We don't know anything about Ahimelech the Hittite other than the fact that he was a Hittite. And, um, but apparently, like this riffraff of people that were following David, these 600 men that were like the outcasts of society, some of them included foreigners in David's, in David's band of, of men. And, uh, and Ahimelech the Hittite was there, and Abishai, the son of Zariah, was there. And we do know some things about Abishai. Abishai, the son of Zariah, was actually David's nephew. Um, he was David's nephew. And then it says uh, that he was the brother of Joab. Well, Joab hasn't appeared in the story at all, so the author's assuming that you guys are going to know who Joab was. Abishai, Joab, and another guy whose name I forget were brothers. And they were, they were like, as you look at them up here in the pages of Scripture, they, they were like three guys that tended to just resort to violence every time they needed to solve a problem. Like, that was like their first response. In fact, in, in 2 Samuel chapter... Three, I think it is. Yeah, in Second Samuel chapter three, both Joab and Abishai like disobey David's direct order and go and kill the very guy that's sleeping next to Saul in, in our story, um, Abner, the the commander of Saul's armies. They go, they they deceive him and they kill him. So when when you hear the word Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother. You're supposed to like, you're supposed to realize like oh the, the, he and Joab and his other brother these are bloodthirsty guys that like to take revenge and Abishai is like oh I'll go down with you into the camp so you're, there's this there's this tension like what's David going to do now that he knows like that Saul is full of it and didn't really mean what he said he meant the story the story unfolds verse seven. <clears throat> 
So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. So Abishai's like, man, this is our chance. In fact, this is one of those places where you're going to be like, wait, didn't we hear this before? Like David's men in the cave said to him, like, God has delivered him into your hand. Now go kill him. Abishai says what? God has delivered him into your hand. But the story changes here. David wouldn't even have to kill Saul himself. He's got Abishai willing to do the dirty work for him. And Abishai says, you know what? I'll take the spear. I'll run it into him. And It'll only take once, and this will all be over, David. I won't even have to do it a second time. David could have just, you know, I'm sure they're whispering because they're surrounded by 3,000 elite troops of Israel at this, point, at this moment. David could have just, like, nodded, and Abishai would have killed him, and David would have been like, what? Like, I didn't mean that. I just had a twitch, you know? And <laughs> so David wouldn't have even had to do it himself. And yet look how he responds, verse, verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? He's like, no, 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 Abishai, we, we've been through this already. Like Saul is still the rightful king of Israel. Don't kill him because he's, he's the king that God placed in that office. And then he goes on. Verse 10, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What he's saying is like, you know what, Abishai, there are an infinite number of ways that Saul could die. The Lord could just strike him dead like he did with Nabal in the story that we saw last week. He could just strike him with a stroke and Saul could die. Or the time of his death should come. I think is that how it phrased it. Or like this curse that has fallen over the world, that this curse of death that, that we all face, that we all like will meet one day. Like if the Lord doesn't come back, like maybe he'll just live his full life out and he'll die like we all die. Or maybe he'll go down into battle and the, the enemies will kill him. But guess what, Abishai? There is one way he's not going to die. What does he say? The Lord forbid that he should die by my hand. Like, I will not kill Saul. And it's this huge statement of trust in the Lord. Like, David recognizes that all of these events that are, like, falling upon him are from God's hand. And even though he has the second chance to kill Saul and wouldn't even have to do it himself, unlike Saul, he... he, keeps his word, he keeps operating in his integrity, and he shows mercy to Saul once again. There's this repeated mercy upon Saul, which is so remarkable to me because it was the mercy of David in the cave that provoked Saul's response to him in the, um, after that, where, where he was weeping and affirming David. And then apparently that mercy had a limited effect because here Saul's hunting him again, and yet David shows him mercy again. Like David's just 
this, this one who's going to continue to show mercy. In fact, he showed mercy to Nabal last week after Abigail like uh, rebuked him. He shows, and he showed mercy to Saul in the weeks before that. Then it says this, uh, verse at the end of verse 11. But now please take the spear that is in his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because, the sa- because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. And the first thing that David does is he tells Abishai, hey, Abishai, grab his spear, grab his water jug. And then it tells us that David grabbed the spear and grabbed the water jug, right? Which I can understand that. Like, here's this guy that, like, seems to resort to violence and wants to run this guy through with the spear. Maybe I'll grab it instead, right? It's a little wisdom there. Hey, grab the spirit. Wait, I'll get it. Um, and I think there's more. That, I think it was more than just convenience. The fact that he took the spear and the like water jug. There was other stuff there that would have been around Saul. I think it was more than just convenience because that spear. This isn't the first time that we've heard about Saul's spear. That spear was kind of like the like the symbolic embodiment of Saul's power and his rage and his hatred of David because that very spear had been hucked at David's head at like more than once in the story so far, right? I think at least two times. It had been hucked at his at his own son Jonathan at one point. Like that spear represented Saul's power and his kingdom and his anger. And water, like the word jeshimon that appears in your Bible there in verse 1, that literally means like the wasteland. When I, when I called it wasteland a couple of weeks ago, that's literally what the word jeshimon means. So like they're in this wasteland, this desert. And like water is the very thing that's like necessary for Saul's life. So what David takes are these two symbols of like power and life. Because he could have seized Saul's power and he could have seized Paul's, Saul's life in that very moment. But he, he took them as symbols like, you know, I had your power and life in my hands and yet I spared you. But then verse 12 really adds some weight to what's going on here. Because in the Hebrew, it's actually this, this kind of parallel construction. It says, but no one saw and no one knew, and no one awoke, because the Lord, like deep sleep from the Lord, had fallen upon them. So not only could David have killed Saul without even like lifting, a, like t- like soiling his hands, just letting Abishai do it, but no one would have seen, no one would have known, because no one awoke. He's in this camp of three thousand people, and they are all dead sleep. They would have woken up in the morning to find Saul impaled on the ground with his own spear, a fitting end to a godless tyrant. And yet David let him go. Like David's like, like integrity and mercy was so great that even when no one would see, no one would know because everyone was asleep, he like still showed mercy to Saul. He still restrained Abishai from doing what he was supposed to do. Verse 13, David smartly then kind of moves across the, well, let me, before we get there, let me, let me just pause for a second and do some application. You know, how, 
How David and Saul both respond to their second chances can teach us something. You know, back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, I think it's verse 12, when, when David was talking to Saul the first time, he said, he said, I'm out, uh, like, uh, let me go back there because I'm going to misquote it now. 1 Samuel 24, verse 12. Oh, verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand will not be against you. So what, he was, what David was saying is that the, the real issue within us is what our hearts are doing. And if, if you're wicked, guess what you'll end up doing? You'll end up doing wickedness. If you're not, if there's no like wickedness in your heart, you'll end up doing righteousness. And here you have like Saul saying all the right things and doing all the right things like weeping, right? You have him like, you have him affirming that David's better than him. You're having asked Samuel to forgive his sins. You're having all of this go on. And yet, like Saul continues to act wickedly, which, which exposes something about the genuineness of his repentance in those cases, which means it probably wasn't very genuine. Whereas David, on the other hand, you have David. The reason why he went out to Saul is that it says that he was convicted of his actions against Saul when he cut off his robe. He responded to Saul out of his conviction, like sparing Saul, affirming Saul. And, and at the end of the day, David continues to do that. But there is no regret in David's mind. If it was me, I would have been like, oh, God's given me a second chance to rewind and redo this thing that I messed up in the cave, right? It's even better now because in the cave, like eventually those guys would have had to come in and check on Saul. Like, man, he's sure going for a long time. And David and they would have been trapped in there. There was good reasons, like strategically, not to kill Saul here. No one saw. No one knew. No one awoke. It would have been an easy thing to bring an end to like all of the struggle that David was in. But David just continued to operate out of his trust in the Lord. It reminds me of what Paul tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, he says this. He says, I'll just read it off the screen. It says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So I want you to be clear here. Saul was a guy that when he was confronted with his sin, grieved. But he never grieved to the point where his heart was transformed through appealing to God for like this like genuine forgiveness. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Like David was a guy who had no regret for showing mercy to Saul the first time. Because when he had the opportunity to do it the second time, he showed mercy again. Whereas worldly grief produces death. If, you, if you're like Saul and you just are like weeping over like being caught or whatever... That doesn't go anywhere. And then he goes on to the Corinthian church. He says this, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you and what eagerness to clear yourselves. When he says that, he's not saying like that to prove that you didn't do what like you're being convicted of. What he's saying is like to do everything you can to try to like show that like your, your repentance is genuine. He goes on, um, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. He's like, this godly re- grief that leads to repentance will cause like people to like do everything they can to like correct what was damaged. 
Saul, on the other hand, he showed this like, grief the very last time we saw him. First chance he gets, he's right back at it. And David, on the other hand, first chance he gets, he continues to walk in obedience. There is no regret with him. You know, I think there's, there's challenges here because like in David's life, if you look at his life, there was so many unknowns. As he stands there before Saul with his sure ability to just to put an end to all of his like struggle. His life was filled with unknowns. He's being hunted. Sometimes like like people like his own tribe, the Ziphites were part of his own tribe. His own tribe betrayed him. Like there was all that he had with these, these promises of God that were given to him like so many years ago when when um when he was anointed by oil and the words of Abigail, like who, who were encouraging him that God has good for you. But like, there are so many unknowns. I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine this week who's been through kind of his own trial recently. And, and he says, sometimes you just have to do the next right thing. Amidst all of the confusion and all of the uncertainties and all of the unknown, sometimes, you know, you don't have an answer to all of it but you just do the next right thing. You know, and that's exactly what David did here. He was faced with all of these unknowns. There was this moment where he could have just seized the kingdom himself by seizing the power in the life of Saul. And he just did the next right thing and walked in obedience. So David slips away, verse 13. He crossed over to the other side and stood at a distance with a large area between them. <laughs> this is a smart guy, right? He's dealt with Saul before. Um, and so he puts some space between them, like he's not stupid, right? And David called out to the people uh, and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you who calls the king? Abner was like the commander of Saul's armies and probably the commander of his bodyguard. Who are you that calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in all Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. So David starts off by taunting Abner, who's the commander of his armies. He's like, Abner, aren't you a man? Like, you're one of the best soldiers in all of Israel, yet like, like you guys completely failed. And because you failed to guard your king, like, the, the, it literally reads in the Hebrew, you're all sons of death. Like, you all deserve to die. You know, what David, what David was saying, basically, he says, because I have, like, the spear. Like, I could have dispatched him, Right? But what David's saying is like, my mercy to Saul was not only mercy to Saul, but it was mercy to all y'all. They were sleeping when you should have been guarding your king. Like David's mercy like extended to his enemies, not just Saul, but all of them. Abner doesn't say anything. Uh, he's probably feeling like, oh crap, right? Like, Verse 17, then Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, the Lord, the king. 
And then David said, why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today that I should have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. It's an interesting statement. What David's saying is like, Saul, here we are again. There's no evil in my hand. In fact, what is in my hand is proof that I'm, I don't like ha- intend any evil towards you because you're, like the, your life and it was, was in my hands. And then, but then he's, he makes this interesting statement. He says, if, if it's the Lord that stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. Like I will, I will like, like in accordance with the law, offer up an offering to like, like in, in repentance to the Lord to, to atone for my sins. He says, but if it is men, which it was, we saw this last, when we saw the David and Saul interaction last time, if it is men, let them be cursed before the Lord. This is serious business. He's cursing these people. Let them be cursed before the Lord because they, and what I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase here, because they drive me out of the land and they keep me from the worship of the Lord. What David's saying is that like the, he, David understands that God like is the king over all of the universe. Like he's not just limited to the land of Israel. But so much of the worship in those days was associated with the land of Israel and with the tabernacle and with the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all of those things that, that happened. And what David's saying is that, Saul, people are lying to you about my intentions. People are stirring you up against me. And the result is, is that I am being driven out of the land of Israel. Like there is no safety for me here. And I am being like the worship of God is like my worship with the Lord is being undermined. The division is causing like exclusion and a lack of like worship in my life. So let them be cursed. It's a really interesting statement because our world is filled with division today, right? And David's saying, if, if anybody comes and seeks to like, like cause division in the people of God and undermine the worship of God, like that's, a, that's behavior that's more in line with like the enemies of God and this curse that's fallen over the world, not those that follow the Lord. In fact, like this strong language of cursing is, is used throughout the Bible for people that, that, that do those kinds of things. Listen to what Psalm, no, it's Proverbs. Where is it in my notes here? Proverbs 6 says, starting at verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So if you want to know what God really dislikes and what he refers to as an abomination, haughty eyes, like when you look down on people proud, proudly, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. All of those things are going on with Saul. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers are an abomination to the Lord. And as I was like reflecting on my notes this morning, it just struck me like, all the body parts that are mentioned there, right? Haughty eyes, lying tongue, 
hands that blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, your breath breathes out lies. I think what the psalmist is getting at is that they're, like, sin has impacted us so deeply that every part of us can lead us astray. Right? Your hands, your mouth, your heart, your breath. And the result is discord among brothers like it was with David and Saul. David was nothing but a faithful servant of Saul. He was Saul's son-in-law. And the counsel that Saul had received had soared discord. And David curses those people because what they're doing is an abomination to the Lord. Here we have Saul's response then. Um, well, let me just finish uh, in verse 20. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. That, that flea reference, again, is a deja vu moment from what David said to Saul the first time. He's like, you know, I am as much of a threat to you as one of the fleas in your hair. I'm just like the, the an interesting, like uh, Abner said, who is it that calls to the king? The word partridge there literally reads calling bird. Like I'm just this, the one who calls to the king is this calling bird that, that uh, is being hunted by this whole army of Israel. But I'm just like a little tweety bird in the branches. I'm a flea in your hair. I am zero threat to you, Saul. Like why do you keep pursuing me? Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool. I have committed a serious error. And there's so many things there. You have Saul acknowledging once again his sin. You have Saul promising to David, hey, come on back into the land. Like, you can return in safety. I'm not going to harm you. You have Saul even being dramatic. Like, I have played the fool. I have committed serious error. Like, I'm like Nabal who went before me. And David answered and said, Behold, the spear of the king, now let one of the young men come over and take it. So David responds to Saul's repentance and, and it appears like takes him at his word. He, he gives the spear that had been hucked at him multiple times back to the king. Doesn't mention the water. Apparently this all made David thirsty, right? <laughs> he sends the spear back. He, he, he kind of re-grants the power back to Saul. And then David says this, verse 23, And the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What he says is, like, is that God is a God of righteousness and faithfulness, and he rewards those who follow him in righteousness and faithfulness. And, and my righteousness and faithfulness, Saul, is demonstrated in the fact that I gave mercy to you once again. My righteousness and faithfulness was evidenced in my mercy towards you, and God rewards like those who follow him in righteousness and faithfulness. And then he says... Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, what would you expect him to say? So let my life be highly valued in your sight this day, right? That's not what he says. He says, so let my life be highly, what does it say? I should read it. So, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. 
Like David's smart enough to know that if he puts his hope and his trust and his confidence in Saul keeping his word, he is going to be disappointed. But what he does is he says, like, just like I showed mercy to you, Saul, may the Lord, like, value my life and may he deliver me from all distress. I'm going to trust and put my life in the hands of the Lord to care for me. And the way I do that is like by doing my best to walk in righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 25, then Saul said to David, blessed are you, my son, David, for you will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So Saul, once again, like utters what are, are, are going to be more true than than. Uh, he realizes David will accomplish much and he will surely repair, uh, prevail. And this is the last time David and Saul see each other. But I want to go back to this idea of righteousness and faithfulness and mercy that David showed him. And because what that does is that, like David kind of operates in two different ways in this text. He operates in one sense as, as the, the anointed king of Israel. And he's, he demonstrates to us what the kind of kingdom that God is establishing in Jesus Christ looks like. It's a kingdom of righteousness and faithfulness and mercy. In fact, Psalm 143 says this. It's, it's a great psalm. Like the whole thing is good. But I, for sake of time, I'm just going to read these first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Think about that for a second. David, uh, I think it's David, Psalm 143. Maybe it's the sons of Asaph, I can't remember, but the psalmist is praying. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my pleas for what? For mercy. And then he says, in your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. Like the psalmist is telling us, like, I want you, God, to respond out of your righteousness to me, the sinner who demands mercy. Which is mind-blowing to me because I don't want, like, God to respond out of his perfect righteousness and holiness to me, right? Because why? No one living is righteous before you. Like the reality is this, is that God is always faithful. He keeps all of his promises. He is always righteous. He always does the right thing. And he always operates in accordance with his heart, which is full of mercy. And so when the psalmist is praying, like, answer me in your righteousness and grant me mercy, it's this confidence because he knows God is a God who grants mercy to those who call upon him. And his kingdom, I don't know, I should just go and read the whole psalm. Let me just read it to you. Sorry, this is a bonus for you. Oh, it is a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear, this is in my, this is in the New American Standard, give ear to my supplications, answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, he has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. 
That's David's life over the last several chapters, right? Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled, remember, within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. And in in the desert, like, call out to the Lord. Like, long for the Lord in those times of dryness. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me to walk in the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. And there's, there's nothing better that we can do when we're faced with, those, with our own unrighteousness. And when we're faced with circumstances out of our control, we cry out to the Lord. We long for him when we're thirsty. We pursue him in trust. We, we seek to walk in his ways. Verse 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. You know what Jesus, what God does through the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, is he establishes a perfect king because as, as like great as this moment is um, with David right here where he like continues to show repeated mercy and repeated righteousness and repeated faithfulness in this like situation that's really difficult, like go back to 1 Samuel chapter 27 now verse 1. We're going to look at this next week, Lord willing. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Very next thing. David's like, like, Saul will eventually kill me one day. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to flee once again to the land of the Philistines, which is how this whole journey started. He just goes right back to it. Like David isn't the perfect king. But there was a promise that Jesus Christ would come who would walk in perfect righteousness and perfect faithfulness and continuous mercy. And and he shows that mercy and he lavishes it upon those who call upon him. And as his people, he calls us to walk in the same faithfulness and in the same righteousness and in the same mercy that he's demonstrated. So Aaron, why don't you and the team come up? And I'll, as, as you're thinking through like the content of this sermon, I just want to challenge you. Like there's a bunch of different things that kind of happen in here. But God's a God who looks at the heart. He's not duped like Saul was able to dupe a lot of people. God's a God that looks at the heart, and that's why, like, it's so important that we don't just try to dress ourselves up through, like, good religious living. Like, we call upon the Lord who shows us mercy, and one of the amazing things that Jesus Christ does for us is he gives us a new heart and a new spirit within us, and he causes me to follow him from the heart, not just because of external religion. 
And so if you're here this morning and your life with the Lord has just been external religion and you think like, oh, if I just do all the right things and say all the right things and dress the right way and act the right way and sing the right things, like, then I'll be okay. That's not the way it works. Saul dressed the right way. He said the right things. He did the right things. Like he, and yet there was no heart transformation in him. He just continued to act out of the wickedness of his heart. Like our only hope is the grace of like God available to us in Jesus Christ that gives us a new heart and a new spirit when we call upon him. And for all of us that are his people, like he calls us to follow him in those same things. What did the psalmist say? Teach me to walk in your statutes because I trust in you. Like it's the life of faith that leads to obedience. It was David trusting the promises of God that caused him to spare Saul's life. And may we be the people who believe his word enough to do the next right thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are a God who always keeps your word, who is a God who has good plan for us and who um, even in the midst of a lot of uncertainty that we can we continue to walk in, in faithfulness and in righteousness because we've been recipients of your mercy and we know that you will keep every promise to us. And so Father, I just ask that you, we as your people would, would walk in the reality of, of what it means to trust you um, in every circumstance that we're in, that we wouldn't seek to solve things by, in our own power, but that we, would, um, that we would just wait for you to solve them in your time and take the actions that you want us to take and, and walk in righteousness and faithfulness. And I thank you for the ultimate righteousness and faithfulness that, and mercy that Jesus um, demonstrated to us and ask that you would um, grant us um, the ability to follow him in that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.